Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners, welcome once again to another episode of your favorite podcast, Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, I am with the epic Evie Ofer Walker, who is the CEO and founder of Ofer. For over a decade, Ofer has helped redesign, diversify, and expand executive talent networks for top nonprofits. Evie is also the author of the viral hashtag Dear Black Women series on LinkedIn, and has been featured in Fast Company, Stanford Social Innovation Review, and O Magazine. Before starting over, Evie led Teach for America's new site expansion, opening eight new offices, raising $40 million, no bigs, and placing over 1,000 new teachers. She's a graduate of the University of Wisconsin Law School and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She is the daughter of Caroline and Sylvester Ofer, two Nigerian immigrants who taught her the rules so that she may one day break them. So Evie, welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I've been wanting to talk with you forever. You are, I don't know if you know this, you're a bit of a legend oh, gosh. here in New York. <laughs> Thank Not you. Not you find a point on it. <laughs> but before we jump in, I just want to know, what, what rules are you breaking that your parents taught you? Oh my goodness. So many rules. So many rules. I think the biggest one is you can understand the rules so that you understand how to break them, right? So I know we're going to dig into it as we talk about our firm and the work that we the work that we do around finding top talent, around diversity, and a lot of the things that we do to surface what's already there. We do this just by simply breaking the rules and asking different questions, right? So saying like, why we don't have to do it this way. What if we did it this way? And then yeah. going for it, right? So just like refusing to do this thing that we oftentimes do, which is like wait and ask for permission. You don't have to ask for permission. Sometimes you can just go ahead and test it and learn that Love way. That. So, yeah. Yeah. In, our, in my last episode with Erica Hamilton, I talked about mm-hmm. the thing that I'm trying, like, what would Chad do? Chad <laughs> wouldn't worry about asking for permission. Right. right. <laughs> that's right. We do a lot of, what would a white man do? Yeah, that's Chad. Would, that, well, that's Chad. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> oh, you know Chad. <laughs> do, oh, I know Chad. We all know Chad. So. <laughs> We all have a Chad. We all have a Chad. So there's lots of that. There's lots of that in terms of understanding very clearly the box that people might want to put you in and then saying, I don't actually have to play in this box. I can actually step outside of this box and create my own box. And so there's Mm -hmm. lots of that throughout our work. I think that's so courageous. So for those of you who are new to Efi, she is the go-to person for top talent in the diversity field. And I want to talk a little bit about your beginnings and the origin story. So is it true that before you started your company, you hadn't specifically done executive recruitment? That is so tell true. me, how did you <laughs> find the courage to like step out and do this thing that you hadn't done before and well, do think, it on your own? Yeah, I think it goes just, it just goes back to the same idea of just breaking rules. So I, as you've, you've already alluded to, I'm a child of Nigerian immigrants. And so I think when you grow up with parents who are immigrants, you are very astute. You become very astute as a matter of survival at paying attention to details and looking for clues about how people do things in a particular space. How do these people get there? What did they do? What are the things that they're doing so that I can either mimic them or test them, try them on and see if they fit. And if they don't fit, how do I need to make adjustments? 
so that my strategies are tailor-made for me. So with all of that context at play, I was at Teach for America, spent two and a half years opening new sites for them, was in a lot of rooms where the people who made the weather in terms of education reform were pretty much all white and pretty much all male. And when I would push up against that and ask why, the answers I received were pretty disheartening. And so when it was time for me to transition from Teach for America, and I had no job lined up, much to my parents' dismay, I didn't know what I was going to do next, but I was pretty confident that I wanted to explore something in the world of talent. I'd always had a curiosity about how people landed into roles where they, you know, how did they get there? And then um, one day, a former colleague called me up and said, I want you to be the new CEO of this charter management organization. And I thought, this is crazy. And this was not one of these like sort of lean in. I wasn't leaning in things. Like it was just not, there was no interview. There was no nothing. It just just didn't make a lot of sense to me. And so I said, you know, I'm not the right person for this, but I can help you think of people who are. And he said, great, how much do you charge for that? And I paused because I had no idea that the world of executive search existed. I didn't know that people could get paid to help find great talent. And I said, I'll Mm -hmm. get back to you in 24 hours. And that was almost a decade ago. I got back to 24 hours and I started what became a journey in terms of learning how organizations think about talent. And then because I've learned the rules, then saying, okay, these rules are not serving us well. They're not actually telling the truth about what happens with all folks when they're coming from the outside. Let's think about all the places where I think the rules need to be remade and reshifted and reimagined. And let's tackle those piece by piece. We're definitely going to dive into that, but I just want to take a tiny little detour because I talk to a lot of women who fantasize about starting their own business, but Mm -hmm. are really afraid to. So can you talk to me for like two minutes about starting your own business and sort of the fears that you had to conquer and some of the challenges and and triumphs that you've had over the last couple of years? I, I just believe in telling the truth. And the truth of the matter is that My husband and I made a very conscious decision at the very beginning of our relationship to live on one person's salary. And so that was intentional. We were in New York where it's like, it's very easy to say, well, I just graduated from law school. I just did that, et cetera, right? And spent all the money on, you know, a posh, very small place in in Manhattan. We didn't do that. We said, we're not spending $4,000 a month on rent. We're going to spend $1,500. 1400, right? We're going to live in Brooklyn. We're going to live in Bed-Stuy. We're going to make certain choices so that we have freedom. And that just became much more important to us. And so because of that structure, we always knew that number one, if any person lost a job or if we ever needed to walk away, that we could do that and be confident in doing that. So having that as a foundation made it a lot, a lot less, it just made it less scary. So Mm -hmm. I have, we have, we're educated, highly educated, at no point did I think if I step off this ramp, I'll never be able to get back on it. It was always, well, I can test this out. And if I don't like it, there are plenty of other jobs that I can take on. So if anything, the fear didn't come from, I talked to a lot of people who want to start their businesses and the fear comes from, what if I can't pay my, my bills? What if there are people who are depending on me? There are other people who, you know, family members, et cetera. I'm the one who's made it to this particular level. They're all counting on me. That was not the concern. The concern was more, I don't want to fail. What if this doesn't work? People will know I tried and I failed. There was, yeah. there was some of that, right? But also recognizing it's not, it was not, none of it was going to be fatal. So I just did yeah. a lot of testing. I started a, a company around helping business women or professional women 
think about eating more, more healthy. I jumped into this and then this really stuck. And as opposed to saying to myself, either I'm going to win or I'm going to fail, I began to tell myself, I'm either going to win or I'm going to learn. And that repositioning helps take away the anxiety and sort of say, I don't have to, I'm the one that's putting all this pressure on myself. And if I can reframe it in terms of winning or learning, then I can just approach, I can just approach this with a much more sort of open spirit and with less anxiety. Evie, I'm going to have you back on the pod. I want to talk all about launching as an entrepreneur and owning your own business because I think that's really, really powerful. And I would say for myself, having also just recently launched my own business, the the immigrant mentality is strong, man. Mm -hmm. Like, what if I end up on the side of the road and I shame my people? Parents, right? (laughs) My parents will be so disappointed. right. I went to college and look where I ended up. Right. That's right. Yeah. And and it does feel a lot more, and it's probably in our own minds, but a lot more sort of higher stakes. Like if I fail as a woman of color, then all the other people will look at me as a representative of all of the people, (laughs) of all of the women of color and say like, well, that's why they're not doing it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we're going to have another pot about that because I think that's just super fascinating. But Stepping back onto the track a little bit, so your firm has become known as one of the go-to firms for talented leaders of color. And so was that an intentional choice, which you just mentioned it was, and how did you do it? So what I would say is that when I first started this, I actually really rejected that idea and said, I actually found it pretty insulting, to be be frank. I thought that the Mm -hmm. idea that, you know, there had to be some sort of special, there's some special place where all the people of color go was mm-hmm. just really just spoke to a lack of just knowledge, right? Like genius is equally distributed. Access is not. That's actually what we need to be talking about. And so I push up against this idea that we're focusing on talented leaders of color. I literally never hear anyone discuss any other white run search firm. It's like, oh, that's the search firm for like the talented white people. I never hear anyone say that. And the people, the, the reason why it's important is that when you are the default, no one names you. No mm-hmm. one says like HBCUs, historically black, you know, colleges, mm-hmm. and universities. When you start to pay attention to what is being named, you begin to understand like where power sits. So I just, re- I just reject, people can send me that package as like Arlen Hamilton would say, but I'm not signing for it. I, we are the firm that is focused on excellence. And what people mm-hmm. be, people who actually work with us begin to realize is that, and what we've thought a lot about is how do we be excellent? Mm-hmm. How do we be so great? People can't stop looking at us. Mm-hmm. And when people spend time working with our firm, what they begin to realize is like, oh, the reason why, you know, last year, 81% of the leaders we placed in historically white institutions were people of color isn't necessarily because Efi has some magical network that does it, that other people don't have access to. It's because she's actually raised the bar. She's actually rigorous. She's not telling, she's telling the truth that search is not a meritocracy, that people don't hire people they don't know, that she's, she's forcing clients to talk to people in advance of them applying the same way they would talk to their white network. And, oh, look what's happening when they do that. When they talk to these 10 leaders of color, they also happen to be interested in them the same mm-hmm. way that they're interested in all their white, their white, white colleagues. And so when you are actually stacking people up with more of an even playing field, look who's winning. 
And like, Mm. that's actually the conversation that I want to have, right? Like, I think if we actually spent more time addressing all the things that people are accomplishing with literally like one hand tied behind their back on one foot, if you began to even the playing field, half of these other folks would be goners. They'd be gone. People have been competing and excelling with less for a very, very long time. And we've hidden behind this guise of like, oh, it's a meritocracy. The Mm -hmm. best people will just rise. And what we have found in our practice through, again, like dismantling different pieces of the process is that it's not a meritocracy. We've only had one client in almost a decade that's ever hired someone that was not already known to them personally, known to their network, or known to our search firm. And unless Mm -hmm. we think we have a monopoly on great people, then it's not a meritocracy. It's not about merit. It's about a whole set of other things. And that's the conversation I think we need to be having. Though I will say, I think having that conversation from the employer side is really necessary and valuable. Though I will say as someone on the other side of it, which is someone who is often spoken to by search firms, I very much appreciate working with you and your team because I feel like you have an understanding of the nuances and like the racial dynamics at Mm -hmm. play that a lot of other firms don't necessarily understand. You know, everyone says that they value diversity, blah, blah, blah. I think we're like in a moment right now. But in your work and what you've seen, what does it actually mean to embrace DEI values Mm. and practices? in real life? Yeah, such a good question. And it actually ties back to your point, which I really appreciate, right? And I I don't mean to sort of dismiss the fact that as leaders of color, it can feel different working with our firm. I think that's true because we're also asking a different set of questions, right? If you want to Mm -hmm. change the story, change the storyteller, right? Like we Mm -hmm. are doing things like we're telling the truth. We are, so to your point around what does it take? It takes the ability to, you know, Maya Angelou says like, tell the truth. Like, You need to tell the truth. And so what does that mean? It means things like we publish salary, right? We publish salary. The number of times I've heard our historically white clients say, well, if somebody is concerned about money at the very beginning, then like they're not, they're in it for the wrong reasons. And I'm thinking to myself, that's absolute. Am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Yeah. I'm like, bullshit. That's, bullshit. that's absolute bullshit. bullshit. Yeah. And that is spoken with all the privilege of a white person who has never had to shell out money for brothers and sisters to go to college. Who's never had to shell mm-hmm. out money the first time you get a job to your parents on a monthly recurring basis. Who's never had to do a, a whole set of things that they're just literally oblivious to. So. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's things like, so it's things like telling the truth. Do not have people go digging and having to ask and go around corners. Tell the truth about salary. It means doing things like before we will take on a client, we engage in a mutual due diligence process. And we do this before we've signed a contract, before we've paid, before they've agreed to pay us, any of those things. So that we have the ability to walk away and say no. So we come mm. in an entire day. We talk to board members, to peers, to outside organizations so that we can come back and say, look, this is what we heard. Here's the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you want to kill the messenger, that's fine. But what we're looking for is a partner that is willing to confront the brutal facts. It's not a perfect solution, but it's the it's the closest to coming to a sense of what it would actually look like to work with this organization as a woman of color, as a person of color. How, how am I experiencing this organization and what are people telling me? So we can come back with that information and then 
putting it in a, a user manual or an FAQ for potential candidates. You know, we put things like, hey, in this organization, you know, we have a client right now where we've said explicitly, this organization has never had a man of color in leadership in its 20 year history. You should know that. Mm-hmm. The only two people of color are African American. And then there's a, you know, there, so there are three people of color. There's two who are African American. One, their trajectory to their position took a lo- took twice as long as everyone else, right? The other is a is an Asian is an Asian woman. There are no Asian men, right? There are no Latinx women, are no Latinx leaders. Period in the entire organization. And oh, by the way, we want to make clear that in stating this upfront, this is not because this is there's a belief that leaders of color are less or they're not worthy. But it is a reflection of this organization's historical commitment to rewarding white dominant norms and white dominant networks and white people. And we have a different commitment now, but you need to know that. We put that in an FAQ document that is public, that anyone can see. And if you want to work with us, you have to be willing to go there. Does that that make sense? Like in terms of, you've you've got to tell the truth about who you are. It's not magic. I mean, I, there's so many things I need to unpack here, but I, I just, <laughs> on a personal level, I was recently contacted by a recruitment firm that shall go unnamed. Okay. And I, I refused to take the meeting because they would not answer a very point blank question I asked about salary because, you know, in the job description, it was like commensurate with experience. And I point blank asked them like, what is the salary? Okay. And they said commensurate with experience. And I just thought it was indicative of a, of an opaque culture that I didn't want to be a part of. And I okay. appreciate it. And this has become like a, an easy commercial, but I appreciate <laughs> that a lot of the content that you put out is very transparent. In particular, I recently loved the operating, the user manual for Surge. And I actually reposted that. I think every leader needs to have an operating manual. And it's really powerful because what what happens, what we've found is that as opposed to, and there's, it's very human, right? To have a, have fear when you're, when you think you're going to be exposed, like, wow, they're going to really see me, right? And being seen Mm -hmm. can be very, can be very scary. What we have found, however, is that it actually is attractive because so few organizations are doing it. And so, you know, one of my heroes, Arlen Hamilton, who runs Backstage, you know, Capital and is just just terrific. She has this saying, be yourself so the people who are looking for you can find you. And Uh, how beautiful is that, that, right? Like, be yourself so the people who are looking for you can find you. There's no point in hiding and trying to put up this you know, fake description about who you are and your organization is like who you are, who you, maybe who you hope to be, as opposed to just saying, this is who we are. And here, yes, here's who we also aspire to be, but you need to know who we are today. And like respectfully, like, does that work for you? Right. That's Mm -hmm. a completely different posture and is one of equality as opposed to what I so often see, which is you should be so like we you are lucky that we are reaching out to you and like you should just be willing to do anything at our beck and call we are actually saying no this is a mutual process and you owe this person the truth about who you are and just as much as you will expect them to also be truthful about who they are you as the institution and the organization also have a responsibility to do the same and we find that because of that people are attracted to us in a particular way because they know 
that we're not saying we're presenting the perfect organization because we don't believe any org is perfect. Every org has their own version of crazy. But what we are saying is that we are going to present you with the truth. Let me ask a slightly different question, which I hadn't intended on asking, but it seems to me that in this day and age, there is a growing consciousness about how to win, so to speak, especially in a tight labor market and especially in this gig economy and the future of work where people can literally start their own company with $100 and an internet connection. And I will speak for myself personally, I, along with a number of former executive directors, are on our own and we don't necessarily see jumping back into a full-time job or an ED position. I'm just wondering, do you see that as a trend across the field? Absolutely. And I see that's more with leaders of color, honestly. Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of research from Lean In and McKinsey. You know, they do like an annual women in the workplace study and that they Mm -hmm. found that in terms, especially with women of color, that is one of the fastest tracks to getting into the executive suite, right? Like we're, if we're not seeing a path forward in, tradi- in the traditional sort of nine to five economy, we very quickly say like, this is not what, this is a faster path and it's a much more impactful path. And so we, we go down our, we, we're betting on ourselves. We are, we are betting on ourselves. And I actually encourage it. People are oftentimes surprised when they reach out or I'm reaching out about a particular opportunity. I actually talked to a woman yesterday who's now doing some contract work for us. And I say like, go off on your own. You don't have to be employable, right? Like I'm unemployable. I don't think I'm employable. People have asked us, can you join and be, I'm like, I don't think I'm employable. I don't, you don't actually want me as your employee. (laughs) I will make your life miserable. (laughs) I said the same thing. I'm like, I am just too ornery to be employed by somebody. That's right. And we, we encourage it. We support it. And I am always happy and excited to give advice and to talk about it, especially if it's a woman of color. And I'm very honest about that. There are plenty of books and plenty of resources for like lots of other folks, but I'm also really excited to, to see people taking that bet on themselves and saying, I I can do this, right? And like the real world will actually be, that's the feedback that I actually really need is like what the real world is telling me about my product, et cetera. What I will also say though, as I think it's important to mention is that people who are not ready to take that leap, I don't think it's for everyone, Mm -hmm. but I do think that mindset of running yourself like a business is still applicable even if you are in a traditional organization, right? And I tell people that all the time who I'm talking to, you need to be, taking stock of yourself and how your contributions are adding to the organization's bottom line. And if you do not see that they are, you need to change that. And mm-hmm. if anything, like that's the message that I would, I would want more leaders of color to fully embrace, like stop waiting for your organization's, you know, 360 review, stop waiting for the end of the year performance review. Stop saying that your, your manager's not giving you any feedback. If you're not asking for it, get it from somebody else. Like you have to, it's like the business, like, you know, Reed Hoffman's at the business of you, right? Like the startup of right. you, like you have to run yourself like a business. And I think it also, if you do that, it also positions people in the future for where our work economy is moving is towards this gig economy, right? And it'll prepare mm-hmm. you for that as well. It's interesting that you said, because I, I think about that a lot now that I'm in my own business. And I think part of it is very much like, I don't know if it's being a woman or being an Asian American woman, but it's very hard to talk about myself and my accomplishments. Mm. And, and I, I just think that that's something 
we need our inner Chad to help us with um, <laughs> if we are to really sort of chart our own path and make our own make our own career ladder. I agree. It's so interesting because I still remember when I was at Teach for America and looking around and saying, again, I don't know if this is like an immigrant skill, but just like, I don't get it. Like there are some people who people think are like tremendous and I don't, I don't think they're that great. What are they doing? And what I realized, like they were also like really good promoters. Like they made sure that certain people and certain messengers said, knew what they were up to and could like parrot back those things. They had like a stump speech. They were like politicians. And so once I realized that, I mean, I didn't have any, I didn't, so I will say like, I did not have any sort of, oh my God, I can't talk. I had none of that. I was like, oh, this is the formula. I just wanted the formula. So this is the formula. Oh, okay. So when I raise a million dollars, I need to make sure I forward this to like the CEO and my boss to be like, hey, you know, just close out on a million dollars. (laughs) Just did FYI, you're welcome. FYI. FYI, right? Like, yeah. and not trying to be obnoxious, but also, yeah. but I realized like I had, I had to talk about, I had to talk about what I was doing yeah. and yeah. that was not the lesson that I'd received necessarily from that. It's not the lesson you get in school. Definitely not if you're a girl, right? It's like, put your head down, do good work, get A's, yeah. but like, don't be quiet. Don't be right? noticed. Right. Do good work. Do good work, which is like the biggest lie. <laughs> the biggest lie ever. All the women out there, all the girls listening know Yes. Doing good work and keeping your head down and being quiet is not going to get you ahead. Is not is not going to get you ahead. And so once I realized that, I just started doing it, right? And letting people know like this is where I'm going to be, this is what I'm this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm up to. And it was really fascinating to sort of observe like, oh, this is what happens when you make sure that your work is visible and also connecting the dots and saying, well, I raise money mm-hmm. and that every role is not created equal. And mm-hmm. that there are certain roles that are valued more in an organization and also recognizing that and just being unashamed about it. Like I know that a revenue generating ready, you know, role that's visible, that puts me out there will also act as a buffer because in a, for a woman of color or a leader of color, what I do on its own is not going to stand. Any most institutions need to need to ensure that they are, that I'm being validated by some external voice. And so mm-hmm. because I was external and I was raising money, if the people I was raising money from and the communities I was in, if they were coming back to TFA, to my bosses, to the people in leadership and saying, oh, I just want with Ethie. She's so great. Having far more weight. So even of if people course. were like, oh, she's not doing X, Y, and Z. Once external people said I was great, magically yep. I was great. <laughs> so external you have to know validation. Yeah, yeah. You external validation and you you have to just know that that's also part of the it's just it's just a game right and it's just about and not just about but it's helpful to also understand what those rules are and then how to navigate that which I also then think think that now on the opposite side also helping to dismantle some of those things and say like we all know that's the game so mm-hmm. let's stop pretending that it's, this is not the game now, how do I, how can I ensure that more people know how to play these, play this game and, or how can I dismantle some of those rules so that they're not necessary anymore? I want to talk about something we picked up on, which is about money, mm, uh, like the relationship yeah. with money. Cause I often feel like whether you're fundraising, 
or if you're a woman of color or a child of immigrants, like you have a very complicated relationship yes. with money. Yes. But I would also say that like I have really respected and appreciated you because you are about that bottom line and you're not, you're not afraid to ask for what you're worth. And like, I just, how did you make that internal shift? Because I think so many women, myself included, underpriced. So I think a couple of things. I think that once one information is one of the greatest antidotes, I think, to it's not always right. Like you can have information and then things else change. Right. right? Like you've got body cameras on police officers. They're still shooting mm-hmm. black men. So like, it's not just about that information. I want to be clear, but information in terms of how you perceive things as the individual is one of the great sanitizers. It's like, it's sunlight. And mm-hmm. you're like, wait a minute. So that person who actually knows nothing <laughs> is charging X and I've actually built a body of expertise. Oh, oh, hell no. Right. Like, do you know what I mean? Like once you know know what you mean, (laughs) (laughs) so if you, when you have that information, so I think a couple of things are true. So one, the very first time I ever negotiated, I was coming out of law school and I was joining a nonprofit and I was told that my salary would be, I'll put it out there, $90,000. And I was coming out of law school, the average law school person back then was making like $160,000, right? Like, even though you don't know how to, you don't know how to do anything, that's how much money you would make. So I was, I thought to myself, well, that's, that's a crazy number. And that's, that's definitely too low. And so I reached out to a mentor of mine at the law school. And I said, this is what they're offering. What should I do? And she said, you have to negotiate. And so she walked me through, right? Woman of mm-hmm. color walked me through. This is how you do it. If they say this, you do this. If they tell you they don't have it in the budget, you tell them, well, I want to have my review in three months or six months as opposed to a year. You tell them, well, ask them if they can pay off some of your student loans. At, like she went down chapter and verse. Here are mm-hmm. all the things you put on the table and like made me practice with her. She told me to tape my notes to my computer so that when mm-hmm. I was you know, having my conversation, I would not forget. I wouldn't get flustered. And I did not get an increase, but I was able to negotiate having my, my review um, done sooner. So six months as opposed to 12 months. And so that experience of having done that, even though I did not get exactly what I wanted, was really powerful for me, right? In terms of saying, yeah, you should ask. Like you should ask. And there's, and like the world didn't end because I asked. Yeah. I came with a lot of fear, like, oh my God, like I really want this job, but I also don't think they're being fair. And I thought like the world would explode and something bad would happen. And that's just not what, that's not what happened, right? And so I really experienced number one was really helpful. And the second thing I would say is that I have a daughter. I have a five-year-old daughter, Amara, and I write about her sometimes also on LinkedIn as well. And sometimes I will stop myself and say, if this were, if this were Amara, what would you tell her to do? All of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, I would tell her like, you need to ask for more money. Like you need to make sure that you, you don't uh, like you know this is a $100,000 client, for example, don't ask for 75, right? Like mm-hmm. you would tell Amara to go in there and ask for 100,000 and ask for X, Y, and Z. So you go do that. And that simple readjustment, like what would I tell my daughter or, or what would I want to tell her I did? Like, mm-hmm. I was explaining this to her and saying like, mom had a choice to do X, Y, and Z. Do I want to tell her that I was afraid and I let that fear stop me from asking? Or do I want to tell her I was afraid and I did it anyway? 
right? Yeah. And like, I want it to be the latter. And so that helps in terms of repositioning that anxiety and fear. And quite frankly, like it's also just backed up in research. Like there's a lot of research that when we think we're asking on behalf of someone, if we can hold someone else in our heads, we are much better at negotiating than if we don't. I love that. And to me, there's so much to unpack there. It's like shifting the mindset from one of scarcity to abundance. And like yes. there will always be more. Mm-hmm. And also the fear of rejection, because I've had the same thing, which is if I ask for too much, then they'll just walk away and I'll be rejected and I'll have right. nothing. Right. right? But right. so often the opposite happens. Mm-hmm. Or if it does happen and they walk away, then it wasn't the right thing. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's been beautiful to see, too, is that like one that abundance piece is so great. And I would even say what I've come to believe now is just there's enough, right? Yeah. Like abundance is also like, I think like a very, like we have a lot of excess, right? In America. But I think like I was reading a book, The Soul of Money and it just pushed Oh my gosh, me. I'm reading that too. Yeah. And I love, and I love that book. And yeah. they talk about the spirit of enough. Like yeah. there is, there is enough work out there. There are, if I continue to be myself, the people who are looking for me will find me. And if I'm camouflaging myself or making myself small, then people who actually want me and are looking for me will not be able to, they won't recognize me. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I definitely want to be seen by those people. And it's actually okay if I'm not seen fully by the other people, it doesn't have to be good or bad. It's just, we're not supposed to be working together if we're not. Yeah. There's so many parallels here to how I talk about fundraising as well. And I'm wondering, is, is this coming from your background as a fundraiser? Or were you just born this wise? No, it's not. <laughs> no, gosh. I think, I feel like I still have, I not, I feel, I know I still have so much to learn. In terms of the, I don't think it came from that. Honestly, it just, it comes from being on this entrepreneurial journey, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, just, you just learn so much by actually being out there where you see what happens when you try to be something you're not. It doesn't yeah. work, right? Like you might be able to sustain that, but you will have, I mean, I remember nights of like literally pit in my stomach clients, right? Where I'm like, this is, like, I dreaded seeing the phone, right? Mm. right? Like you don't want that, right? If you've experienced that, you say to yourself, like there is nothing worth my peace, right? Like mm-hmm. there's nothing worth that. Like that extra energy that I'm expending, if I'm working with someone that, I, that I'm not in alignment with because I have not been true to myself, will cost you, right? And other mm-hmm. things. And then I've also seen the power of just being true to myself and like all the good things that flow from that, the additional business, like all the things I'm just, this is who I am and just being unapologetic about that, right? All the things that then flow from that. And really for me, like those lessons came more along through the entrepreneurial journey and honestly less through fundraising. Like the fundraising thing for me was at that point in my journey, I saw what other people were doing and I mimicked that, right? Uh, And I also found that to be exhausting, honestly, Mm -hmm. exhausting. Mm -hmm. I was good at it. And I think a lot of people who come from like an immigrant background, like part of what you do is you look and see what others are doing and you do a lot of mimicking, right? Yeah. Sometimes that can be really, we're good at it, right? Yeah. But it's exhausting and it comes with a price, right? Yeah. So that's, that's what I've come to, come to believe. Yeah. 
I think there's a lot there around aligning your energy with your purpose, which mm-hmm. we talked to Joby on this podcast too. And she talked <laughs> a lot about that. Yeah. And I was recently talking to a friend of mine, Elaine, who's also on this entrepreneurial journey. And she said, you know, I just decided to stop worrying about money. I just decided yeah. I made a conscious decision to stop worrying. Mm. And yeah. that's been really powerful for me because I, I think if we make conscious intentional choices about the things that we're going to do or not worry about or focus our energies on, other things start to flow. Yeah, that's really powerful. And, you know, I don't know if I will ever be there or if I do, I think it'll take a lot longer. Like I think, and it, it would, so what's interesting is I remember, and I think this is like sort of like the internalized things you internalize over time. I remember when I worked, when I worked at Teach for America, I thought, and you could, my husband will tell you this. He was like, you're crazy. I thought every single day that I was going to get fired. Even though I was like the highest performing person in that role, had raised twice as much money as it had ever been raised. I mean, I'd opened three times as many sites. Like I had on every objective metric, I had nailed it, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, but I'm not doing these other things. Da, 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 da. Like I just had a hard time recognizing that part of what also made me strong in certain areas was because I was also making a choice like not to do other things. But that mm-hmm. fear of if I don't keep on doing this, like it'll run out. Right? Yeah. It's interesting, right? Because even from a business perspective, we just, we were just, we're very fortunate. Like I'm so grateful that we are in such a, like we have, we, for example, like we have an FU fund, we have a literal FU fund and we take a portion of every, and it goes right into the FU fund. And if we ever need to be like, we're handing our money back, we go right into that fund and it doesn't, it has nothing like it's separate. It's separated from profits. It's separated from our operating account. It's, it is literally called the FU fund. And still, I still have, I think like this sort of immigrant, you've got to keep moving. You've got to keep pushing. You've got to keep be like, like one-upping yourself, right? Like mm-hmm. all the time. Otherwise, like this could all end, right? Like, yeah. so I don't, does that make sense? I, I feel like you're, you're in my head. I'm like, yes, all of the things. Like, yeah. That plus like the not asking, like my entire career as an executive director, I not want, even though like saw tremendous growth, the organization, budgetary, et cetera, not once did I ever ask for a raise in 12 wow. and a half years. Not once. Crazy. Partially because I also knew that I'd have to raise my own. Right. Raise. Right. <laughs> right. right. That's like an extra $10,000 I had to raise. But, but it was because I really similarly was like, I'm not doing a good enough job. Like right. I can always do more. I can, right. al- I could always sleep less. Right. I could always, right. <laughs> I could always work more hours in the day. Right. That's right. And, and unfortunately, I mean, I love my career. I, I, I learned a lot, but I was also really tired at the yeah. end of 12 and a half years. Yeah. I'd exhausted everything I had. Oh gosh. So, if we could pass these lessons on to our the next generation, right? Well, like, that's what I'm hoping to do, you know, <laughs> with this podcast. So ladies listening, please ask for a raise, negotiate. And, and actually the thing that really has come up as a theme amongst women of color in particular is the power of mentorship and yeah. both mentoring younger folks and, and having powerful mentors. And so I think that's certainly a key to success. So we'll continue to talk about that. But if you, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you are a busy woman running your business, <laughs> changing the world, making things happen. I really, really appreciate your time. And I hope to have you back at some other point and we can talk more about all of the things. I would love to do that. Thank you so much, Ria. Easy. A pleasure. Talk soon. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.